the Business and Leadership Podcast with Jared Graybeal. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Jared Graybeal, and on today's episode, I've got special guest Cliff Farah. Cliff is the founder and president of the Beacon Group which has provided uh, Fortune 100 companies with growth strategies and tactics for the past 20 years. He's the author of dozens of growth strategy and analytical frameworks, and he's a guest lecturer at the University of Virginia's Darden Graduate School of Business, where he actually got his MBA. I'm really excited for this call and this talk today. Cliff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jared. appreciate you having me on. Absolutely, man. Uh, I think that this conversation or at least I'm excited about the potential of this conversation being really geared towards um, business and business development and growth strategies. So I'm excited. I haven't had a good thorough <laughs> about this. Today. Great. Anyway, um, Cliff, uh, real quick, let's kick off with, you know, how'd you get to where you are today? What's your short story? Yeah. Um, so uh, I have always been a career consultant. I was lucky enough to, um, uh, work with a guy named David Maester very early in my career. Uh, he was this Harvard Business School prof, sort of phenom, consulted to consulting firms around the world, you know, McKinsey, Bain, Booz, all hired him and he would go in and kind of hold court. You know, he's this really cool British guy and knows his stuff. I worked for him for a couple of years. Clearly, I needed to, to uh, go get a degree. So I went, I went to the Darden School, got my MBA there, and then worked in just about every part of the consulting um, spectrum, right. With the intent that I would someday start my own firm and, um, nine 11, I was supposed to be on the second plane that went into the towers and I canceled the night before. Yeah. I canceled the night before. And my wife looked over at me and she just said, you know, life's too short. You always wanted to do this. Why don't you, why don't you go start your own firm? It's time. And so I did, and this will be 20 years in business for us. Uh, later this year, we've done over 1,500 projects uh, for our clients in the um, uh, domains that we serve. And I've just got this amazing team uh, that I get to work with every day. And we work on some of the most intriguing stuff uh, in the business world. So very, very fortunate and uh, happy to be here. What an interesting turn of events. And uh, you know, kudos to you for taking advantage of an opportunity because not everybody would. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people might pull back. Uh, yeah. as opposed to take more risk. And so I value that. Uh, I'm aligned with that. Um, <laughs> Cliff, I know you've got a book coming out uh, called yeah. Growing the Top Line, subtitled yeah. Four Key Questions and the Proven Process to Scaling Your Business. Um, very exciting title, especially for people that are as pragmatic and practical as me. Like, yeah. just tell me what you're giving me. Um, sure. Let's talk about those four key questions, if you don't mind. What are those? Yeah, questions? you bet. Um, all right, so, so one thing you have to know is when you think about the firm and, and what we do, we're, we are growth strategists. So we worry all about how companies uh, grow and sustain growth in their top line. And, and so, you know, the, the, the kinds of creatures we play with are, are big. You know, a, a client I might seek out runs a six to twelve billion dollar line of business globally, right? That's why that's why I try to work with. And um, they typically sell a science or a technology through a channel to you know an, an enterprise or consumer or government customer. So it's so that it's a very specific it's a specific niche that I that I play in. But one of the things that um, 
you know, is true is that, you know, when you think about growth, it's almost a boundless question, right? You can, you know, how, you know, Jared, how could you grow your, your business as an entrepreneur? Well, you know, it's ultimately up to you, right? You think about what you want to do and you, and you sort of get passionate about it and you create something great and you bring it to market. And if you're good, people will buy it. And if you're not, they won't. Um, but, but you're, you're, you're literally unbounded. And, and so that's the dilemma of a growth strategist is, is actually bounding the problem, flunking bad ideas, bringing some focus in so that, you know, like when I talk, when I talk to my friends who have gone out and become entrepreneurs and they've, they've had, they've had great success, but it tends to be like a one-shot deal. And the difference between them and their success and the clients that I get to work with is the repeatability, sustainability, pro- the process behind growth. Um, so what, you know, when I started the firm back in 2001, there really wasn't anything out there on how to, how to do growth strategy. You know, it was, uh, there was no, uh, you know, innovators dilemma or, or blue ocean, you know, publication out there for me to look at. And so we had to, we had to really take our time and, and, and think through, over time, what were the key questions that drove failure success for these larger entities? And so what we do in the book is we kind of share that. We share the, we share the four questions and then we share the pro, a repeatable process. So here are the four questions, right? Where, where does money come from? That's number one, right? Money always comes from a customer. So, so, so question one is what customer will I serve? And, you know, it seems like an obvious question and it is, you know, there, there, the sources of revenue for any company either come from the, you know, the company you sell to and then what you sell them. It's just those two variables, you know, uh, and you can either have an existing customer or a new customer and you, or, and you can sell them something that you already make or something new that you're going to, that you're going to provide. Those four boxes encompass the entire world of revenue and, and it's the revenue matrix, right? When you, when you look at the book, you'll see it. Um, so that's pretty obvious, right? What, what, who am I going to sell to and what am I going to sell them? Those are really the, the, the two core questions. And then there are two other ones um, that we worry a lot about that aren't as obvious, but they are, are fundamentally important as you think about success or failure in, in business. And there's lots and lots of evidence along the way to, to, to kind of show this. One is the geography that you're going to serve. Like, where am I going to do, where am I going to exist? So, so I don't know, Jared. Take take like a, a local restaurant that you like, right? Someone started up, and it's and it's a it's a cool restaurant, and they get to capacity. They can't grow anymore. Um, they want to expand. Well, if they're expanding the next town over, like you're you're in Jacksonville, right? So if they if they just you know go down the road a little bit, um, uh, let's see what's what's near you down there. Um, Vedra. Santa Vedra. Perfect. Yeah, go over. Go by the golf course, right? Go by Sawgrass. Uh, so, uh, so they decide they're going to go to the next town over. That's actually a pretty easy, low risk move, right? You can drive to the location, you can share the staff, you know, customers probably spill over between the two locations. Not, not, not such a bad bet, right? Low risk. What if you go to Orlando, right? Orlando, well, you can still drive there for you, right? It's a couple hours away, but, uh, but there's a little more risk involved now because you're not on site every day. You get the cost of, of uh, you know, maybe another apartment down there to go manage what you're doing. You got to recruit new staff. You don't know people. You don't have the infrastructure. Got to work through a new town and, and their regulations. Um, let's say you do really well there and you say, I'm going to expand some more. I'm going to become a regional product. You go to Atlanta, 
uh, now you really start to get stretched thin. Atlanta does well. You say, how about Texas? Texas does well. You say, what about Washington State? Every time you make a move away from your core, the risk goes up, the risk of failure goes up. And, and that's within the US. So yeah, you have to deal with um, you know uh, federal tax, but you also have this state question of nexus, which is a really pain in the butt thing for companies that are growing to think about from a tax standpoint. But when you go international, right? When you decide you want to be a global concern, then it's it's an entirely different different standard of um, you know of risk, right? You have repatriation risk, you have political geopolitical risk, you have um, regulatory requirements for operating in, in in different countries. So so where you're going to play is a really really big deal, and and uh, uh, so that's question number three. And then and then question four is one that um, it, it the the question is what business model will I use? And so this to you, it probably seems pretty obvious. You know, uh, smaller companies are really flexible and, and smart about how they can disrupt existing ecosystems. Big companies like to defend and grow what they do, right? So they don't like change that much. They're like predictable. You know, you play by the rules I've established because they're good for me. What's been going on over the past um, probably like 15 years is markets have started to become volatile because of a business model. And what I mean by that is like um, when, when Google came along with Gmail, right? And then Google Apps started to appear, uh, they disrupted Microsoft's shrink wrap software business. And so Microsoft had to, you know, invest arguably the, the equivalent of, of a large scale acquisition to develop infrastructure to offer 365. And then they had to retrain their sales force and redo their comp systems. I mean, just a tremendous amount of change and, and kudos to them. They did it, right? But a tremendous amount of change to their business model. And they were able to you know, su- succeed by moving away from shrink wrap to recurring revenue stream, right? Um, we're seeing that everywhere. It, you know, this as a service uh, phrase that you hear everywhere or consumption-based modeling is the cool new way to say as a service. Um, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, risk and reward associated with your flexibility of your business model. And so that's the fourth, that's the fourth variable that we worry about. And when you collide those things together, they yield different pathways to grow that are classic and consistent, no matter the size of the business. And so we, we talk about that in the book. That's awesome. That's very exciting stuff, especially for <laughs> business nerds like myself and hopefully the audience. Um, reminds me of Jim Collins. And if you've written a book that reminds anyone of Jim Collins, you're probably on the right track, right? Uh, uh, I and, uh, you know, stimulate the core uh, or preserve the core, stimulate growth, right? The yin and yeah. the um, And I love the complexities of large businesses being forced to change and things like Microsoft, where you basically have to start a whole new business within a business. Yeah. And, and that's how you survive and ultimately grow the top line. That's exciting stuff. Um, so can you tell me practically, like, what does the Beacon Group do? You mentioned, you know, you work with companies at the scale of six to $12 billion in annual revenue. Yeah. They, work. they reach out to you and say, hey, Cliff, we need some help. <laughs> like, well, you know, uh, probably a little more formal. But and then what do you do? You, you go spend a year with them yeah. and then start to offer them some suggestions. 
Now we, we, we violate a lot of um, long held belief about how services should be delivered. Our, our model is actually one that um, I, for example, I used to work at a firm called AT Kearney, which is a, a big uh, 2,500 part. When I was there, 2,500 partner consulting firm, um, we would do nine month to two year engagements. Uh, I got, I got to redesign uh, FedEx's call centers. That was, that was a, that was a, a fun one. Uh, except we ended up laying off a whole bunch of people. And uh, that left a pretty bad taste in my mouth and, and, and kind of drove me towards this notion of, hey, re- revenue is infinite. I don't have to lay people off. I'll, I'll actually hire people to drive uh, growth. So, so that, that kind of excited me. Um, what we do is we go in and um, we, we work for people who are trying, they have a, they have a a growth objective. So they typically are either, you know, business unit presidents or strategy folks or, or, or product line um, managers. And, and they'll say something like we need to, um, you know, triple the size of our business in five years. We have the following kind of resource to do it with. And, um, you know, we, we, we'd like to, we'd like your help to figure out how best to achieve that goal. And, and then what we do is we go out and we study the market and we understand um, sort of the regulatory environment. We talk with customers, we talk with um, competitors, we talk with channel partners, and we, and we paint a fairly full picture of the current and likely future landscape that our clients are going to operate in. And then within that, we deploy our frameworks to really think through in the world of what you could do to grow, uh, what should you do? And and what's nice, I think, about our approach versus other firms that I've worked at or other companies we compete with is it's, it's incredibly collaborative and transparent. And um, we don't want to be the smartest person in the room. We want to be the most effective. We want we want our team to be the most effective at achieving growth. Um, so yeah, I, I we say no to a lot of book reports. And we say yes to people whose jobs are on the line. And I think, you know, we've, we've been lucky enough to um, have great relationships over the years that have, have driven quite a bit of success for us. That's awesome. I, I think you said something really stood out. Uh, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to be the most effective. Yeah. Um, very powerful. That's a noteworthy quote. Uh, <laughs> so you, something that, you know, your agent had mentioned to me is that you're a competitive sailor. Yes, I love that. I love that for a couple of reasons, because I think all too much in business, the hundred hour work week is glorified, which doesn't really allow time for Mm -hmm. something like competitive sailing. And so I appreciate and respect that you're a man of your hobbies. And uh, I think that there's a reciprocal reward for spending time doing the things you love outside of work. Yeah. Um, But (laughs) this is a really a side question. What do you like better sailing or business? Uh, wow. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm even, I'm even with both, right? Like, like, I don't think I could just sail and I don't think I could just do uh business. And what's been fun for me is, uh, while I am, I am a competitive sailor, I'm, I'm getting a little older and my daughter has sort of picked up the reins and I've been able to coach her and teach her. And now I cheer her on quite a bit as she's uh, mounting an Olympic campaign for 2024. And oh, wow. so yeah, cool. it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. But, but I think you're right. Look, I'm, I'm a huge believer in balance and um, uh, in everything, right. In, 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 in our employees, in our, 
you know, in the, in the products we produce in the life that I, I try to live and sport is a, is a requirement, I think for, um, balance in, and we all compete in different ways. Sailing for me is just a way to do it in an immersive way that just, you know, it, it removes all of the, you know, all of the thought, uh, that's in my head after working a long day, I get to, I get to go, uh, uh, compete and apologies for the dog barking in the background. She's a, she's a new member to the family and gets excited. I'm sure our audience will be okay. Um, so I've never been sailing. I love it. It sounds really cool. And it's one of the things on my bucket list. Um, you, you know, you mentioned kind of like the lessons you've learned from sailing and and just for the audience, I mean, you've been profiled on ESPN and sailing magazine. You're a legitimate competitive sailor. Right. Right. What, what kind of, what have you learned from sailing that you've applied to business? So, um, so a whole, a whole bunch. Um, I actually ended up writing an article to remember 2000. Well, yeah. 2008 was a bad time in the economy. Yeah. And, uh, I, back then I, I, I was deep and I just won a North American championship and, and, um, in, in part of it was raced in light air. It was, it was super, uh, quiet on the water and, I kept thinking about how much that mirrored the economy. And I started thinking about what I would do to make a boat go fast in light air and how that related to competing in a down economy. And, and it, I was stunned by the corollary. So, you know, just like it just it leapt off the pen and onto the paper and, and it turned into this really interesting thought piece that I dusted off for COVID. And uh, so I've got this white paper out. It's called Racing in, in Light Air that anyone can, I'll talk a little bit about, but anyone can grab it off of our, our, our website. And, um, you know, it's things like, you know, when you're, when you're racing in light air, first and foremost, I, I think you have to have the right mindset. Um, it's going to be slow. Like there's nothing you can do. You know, it's not it is, as good a sailor as you are in heavy breeze and, you know, how much fun it is light air sucks and it sucks for everybody on the course. And so you have to get your head screwed on that way. It's the same thing right now in the pandemic. Um, there are some people who are doing exceedingly well. They're in a puff, right? You see puffs in light air and they're, they're extraordinarily rare and they, they, they live in a, in a quiet, you know, it's a very specific zone, but, but for the most part, people are, are not in puffs. And so, um, you have to just settle down and be smart about your movements. You can't just move for the sake of moving because that creates resistance and you, the boat gets all slow and people, people will pass you by. So having the right mindset, being thoughtful, being pragmatic about what you're going to do and why is, is very important. Um, keeping your head out of the boat, right? Which is the equivalent of knowing your market. You know, it, it's, it's not that there's no money out there. It's just that it's hard to come by and whoever has it, you really have to pay attention to those, uh, customers. So, so being smart about that is, is, um, something, um, moving as a team, when you, when you're, when you're moving on a boat in light air, you don't have the, that pressure from the wind on the sails to keep the boat balanced for you. So your body weight matters where you, where you put resource matters. And that's true in, in, in the business world, as well, right? If you've if you've got scarce resources and really rare business opportunities, you want to make sure people are working on the right thing. You don't want someone doing something because it, it, you know, because they're and and by the way, this happens a lot. People confuse being busy with with doing a good job, and 
And I don't think that's true at all. And it's, and it's really, really obvious in times of strife. So, so, you know, knowing where to put people and what task they have and making sure they're doing a good job is, is sort of critical. Um, this is not, it's an ugly truth, but it's, but it is true, which is uh, weight is slow uh, generally. And so you have to make sure you manage the weight on the boat. And sometimes you have to take weight off the boat. And, and in business, that means you resource appropriately, right? We, we just, I mean, for me personally, I've never had to furlough or lay anyone off before. And I had to furlough people during the pandemic. And then I was able to bring them back on board, but it, it was a terrible decision to have to make. And, uh, I fought it as, as long as I could. And, um, you know, that, that awareness of when it's time to make a change like that, when it's time to tack the boat, when it's time to sail in a different direction is another thing that aligns well, I think, between business and sales. So anyway, there's there's a longer list, but but there's a lot of really good stuff. And there's the inverse too, right? Like when you're in light air, you know, you're trying to power the boat up and be fast. When you're in heavy air, so take healthcare, right? There are certain niches in healthcare that couldn't keep up with demand during the pandemic. And those are the ones that that, you know, that the name of that game is, oh, okay, we're going fast. We have to go in control. Right. Don't be out of control. Make sure you know where you are on the course. Make sure you know when you get a change course to get to the, you know, the finish line. Um, when you get so busy that you're just struggling to meet demand in business, that's a different kind of pain. Even though it's it's generally a more profitable pain, it, it, the wheels can still come off the bus at that point as well. So anyway, lots of really cool stuff. Um that that and and there are there are there are plenty of books out there, good books out there that uh that, that kind of talk to the corollaries. Yeah, I love it. I'll have to check that article out. Yeah. Um, what are some practical global growth strategy development and actual examples of success and failure that you've experienced? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, so I, we, I talked about one, which, which was sort of the Microsoft 365 example. I, I love that example because, you know, if you really think about, I, I, you know, and I'm not sure where the listeners work right now, but one of the things that is a truth of any entity that's ongoing is it has a culture. And that culture is largely derived from people becoming comfortable with a certain set of behaviors and 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 values of of the business. And one of the one of the values when you get into like a big company like Microsoft, that's a truth, is that salespeople, you know, the the, the people who feed the tribe are really powerful. And they have a lot of influence on the company. And, and so f- when I think about a leadership challenge that was a life or legitimately a life or death challenge for Microsoft, um, in, in this case, they were able to create awareness and get everybody aligned and pivot the, the ship. Um, and it would be like, you know, Jared, someone coming to you and saying, hey, Jared, I know this is how you've been paid up to this point. And you know, you've been playing, I don't know, uh, Jared, you're a tennis player. You've been playing tennis. You keep winning all these tournaments. Guess what? You're now a hockey player and we're going to pay you differently than we've ever paid you before. Um, it's, it's like that kind of an equivalent that they had to live through. And, um, it was, it was really difficult. Like an an example of, of maybe a failure on that front is, you know, it's some classic ones, right. But think about like Kodak, (laughs) 
Right. Yeah. You know what the killer for Kodak is? Get this. They invented the digital camera. They studied the market. They knew how how long they had to milk the cow on their core tech. And uh, and they just didn't pivot. They just had hubris and you know they couldn't get people behind it and they couldn't make the move and it eventually destroyed them. So, you know, there's there's great value in in sort of being a large company, but but you also have to be incredibly self-aware and and realize that nothing lasts forever. Uh, you have to constantly reinvent yourself. I love it. Um, so speaking of value, Cliff, uh, and you had alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I want to touch on it. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts in terms of pursuing traditional continued education? You know, uh, undergrad, graduate degree, MBA, like you have. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of we'll call them thought leaders and big name entrepreneurs. Uh, I wouldn't say talk down. They just don't talk very great about pursuing college. And a lot of that has shifted over the past couple of years. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And it's something I, I grapple with quite a bit. And I've changed my opinion on several times in my um, life, which I think you have to reserve the right to do, right? You can never be so uh, static that you can't absorb new data and come out with a different outcome. Um, I, I think classically in the profession I chose, Um, and at the tier that I play in the profession that I chose that it's a lot like brain surgery. I, I use, I've, I've used this example a lot, right? It's kind of like, God forbid you have to have brain surgery. Are you, are you going to want to go to, you know, someone who's never been formally educated, or are you going to want to go to the, you know, the top brain doc at Johns Hopkins who, who, who can, you know, you know, do, do the job, assume they're both equally capable, right? Which one are you going to go to? naturally there's a bias towards for me anyway and and the way i was raised there was there's a bias towards the best of the best when you have something really really serious and and so you know in the services world i think that's um that's that's been kind of table stakes the pedigree of your education is, is 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 an indicator of trust and that trust is one of the key components of successfully being an advisor like like we are um and and I think you know, and in, in the way that I've built the firm is I really have two tiers in the firm, right? One is the the junior staff that is largely research and and, and analysis, but they're they're from undergrad through whatever graduate degree they want to go pursue, right? And I've set it up that way. Right? I I will expose you. I will I will you know give you an opportunity to work in these different domains. I will support you as you move into your next phase of your career, what, whatever that is. What's your five-year plan? How can I help? And, and I've, almost, I've, I've essentially forced an exit at that point f- for them to go get a degree and then come back. Uh, recently, though, just in the, in the pandemic actually triggered this for me. Um, I saw greatness in some of my staff. Like, I mean, brilliance. And um, I really had a moment of epiphany that, you know, there are some people, they're not often found, but there are some people who are so good and so smart at what I do that without a degree, they can succeed. And, and so I've embraced that notion. I, I, I think the, the answer is it depends on what you want to do. Yeah. And, and, and kind of how, 
how aggressive your timeline is and how entrepreneurial you are in thought. The more comfortable you are with risk, then I think the more entrepreneurial you might be, the more aggressive you might be in, in your timeline, you can do some non-traditional things. Um, I think if you're, if you're, if you're more comfortable following a well-worn path, um, then I, then I think, you know, school is never going to hurt you. Um, but I understand, you know, I, I, I also have this, this belief that if you're going to go get an advanced degree, you should go to the best school you can go to. And, and so I think we have a, a, a tendency to self-select out of um, really good institutions. I mean, who, you know, a lot of people apply to Harvard, but not as many that as, as could apply to Harvard. Yes. And so I think if you are going to go for an advanced degree, you should get the best one you, you possibly can. And then I think there's some really amazing stuff going on with institutions now as they try to adjust to, um, you know, the new new. And the fact that there are executive MBAs, like like an executive MBA is being an equivalent to an MBA, right? Where you can work and get your MBA. That never existed when I went to school, right? Like it had to be full-time. So, so that's, while it doesn't necessarily feel like a big change for maybe people who are on the outside, um, for the industry itself, it's, it's massive flux. And, and now the pandemic is causing even more and more um, attention to be put on online learning and some of the opportunities that that provides. And, and God knows, I mean, I've got YouTube. What the hell do I need a degree for, right? I don't need an electrical engineering degree. I can go on YouTube and someone will show me how to wire my van, whatever, right? Um, like that, that kind of access to knowledge really hasn't existed prior to now. So um, I, the answer is, it's not a good one that I gave you. It's a, it's kind of a crappy one, sure. but, but I think it depends on, I think it depends on what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true too. I, I like to just get people thinking. Um, I think it's important for context, right? Like we know that if you want to be a nurse, you got to go to school. If you want yeah. to be a doctor, you got to go to school. But yeah. I think in business these days, young people almost reject the idea of going off to school because it's like, all these other people didn't even go and they have businesses. But if you think about the Titans of the industry, yeah, uh, the Jeff Bezos, yeah, the yeah. Bill Gates, um, Elon Musk, like these people have degrees and pursued graduate degrees and maybe they didn't finish, but they, like, Steve jobs got into Stanford, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, he didn't finish, but he had a high level of intelligence. I was interviewing this really smart guy for the book and we were talking about markets that he likes to pursue. Um, and he said, you know, one of the variables we consider is whether the market's growing or not, right? If, if, yeah, you can always beat it. You can always beat the average. You can beat the norms, but it's so much easier to swim with the current. And it's, it's kind of like the same thing with education. Yes, you can be the one-off eagle that soars. Um, but if you played stats, education would yield a higher yeah. probable outcome than not having an education. Right. And then I think there's, and this is different these days, obviously with this hybrid and online model, but if you look at some of the greatest business stories, it's not so much about what they learned in college. It's more about who they met in college. Um, yeah. And that works a big deal, right? Wouldn't have met those people yeah. Yeah. if they didn't go to college. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That works a big um, deal. I mean, in our, in our family, I've got two kids that are in, in college right now. And, and since they were young, um, 
it's never even been about the college degree. It's always about the graduate degree. What are you going to get? You know? Yeah. Um, so we've, we've tried to encourage them uh, towards that. So uh, pivoting here, I know that you've worked with, again, some of the largest companies in existence, yeah. six to $12 billion a year. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, what have you learned working with these large businesses that small to medium sized businesses can apply uh, to what they do in the day to day? Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, it, it is that large companies are really good at a few things um, that leverage their scale, right? And, they, and they've learned they've learned these lessons over time. But um, having a repeatable process is largely going to yield, you know, a, a predictable outcome. And and then if you tweak that process to get the outcome you want, then you ought to be able to do it over and over and over again. So, so you know. It's sustainability and this mindset of sustainability that you know that larger companies have that I think would benefit you know smaller companies that you know they can tend to be very reactive to opportunity in the market and there's strength in that but but at some point there needs to be this baseline set of behaviors that is repeatable and trainable and scalable as you as you think about you know going forward um, systems. Systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Systems, but but it doesn't have to be like computers. It's it could just be that you know, okay, this is how we open today, right? Yeah. You know, we go, we get the we get the bank roll, and we put it in the cash register, and we count it out, and we you know, like like we used to when I was a bartender way back in the day, right? That's we had a process for how we would open the bar. Just having that documented and thinking it through and making sure it's right, and that kind of leads to the second one. Um, you got to focus on the core stuff, not the fun stuff. Or the sexy stuff, right? Like I can't tell you how many people I know who've gone out and tried to start a business or have a business, and they worry about the sizzle and not the steak. And the the problem with that is, you know, like having a cool logo or you know having having a cool website or uh, unless it drives inbound, it's superfluous. It's like wasted motion. And and so I think you know you see a lot of movement that's non core when when people start out and. You know, know what you're selling, know who you're selling it to, you know, know what your profit is, know where your costs are and manage the hell out of them. And, and for the most part, for small companies, it's, it's understand your cash uh, position and, and, and large companies, well, they have finance for that. They have operations, they have, you know, systems, they have uh, IT, IT groups. It's a more manual process, smaller, but you still have to worry about the same stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, know when to pivot. If it's not working, don't keep doing it just because you've got so much invested. You know, it's the I've, I've been dating someone for a long time, so I, you know I can't break up with them because it, it's it's I've got too much invested. Yeah, no, I mean you have to, what we do. Yeah, yeah, you, <laughs> you have to be mercenary about um, when to pivot the company, and and I think sometimes you know people aren't you know realistic enough in in some of the math that they do as they look at the performance of the company. Yeah, I love that. And I really appreciate the context. You're, in your experience working with these large companies, I imagine you've worked with some, some bad leaders and some great leaders. Uh, <laughs> so in your opinion, what makes a great leader? And you can kind of fire off one to three character traits. Um, I mean, I, and I, I teach this. I think empathy is probably the number one asset you can have as a professional in, the, in, in any profession. If, if, if you can't understand who you're dealing with, whether it's a colleague or a customer or a client, and the fact that life is organic 
um, and you have to, you know, meet people at, at face. I think that's what you want from a leader, someone who understands you as a human, not, not, not someone who's just going to crack the whip at you. Um, I think honesty is, uh, is super critical. Um, the worst thing you can do is, is, is be dishonest and, and sort of mislead the people you work with, whether they're customers or, or, or colleagues, you know, sometimes saying a hard truth is, is by definition hard, but, but, you know, you, it's, it's, it's something that has to be said so, so that it can be addressed. If you let it fester or you ignore it, or you don't take, you know, significant enough action, honestly, as you confront the challenges of business, then I, then I think you don't have a lot of trust in the leader that, that you're, that you're working with. And then, um, I think, and I don't know how you teach this one, but just pragmatism, you know, like, like just, I, I used to talk about it. I'd say like, oh, he gets it or she gets it. And what I meant by that was just that, you know, they, they were pragmatic. They knew what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And they, they knew what to focus on and what not to focus on. And I, I think, I think that's, that's a really important trait to look out for yeah. as you evaluate your leaders. Really nuanced though. It's hard to teach in, yeah. you know? And yeah. it's interesting that you say empathy and then you say honesty, because at times those can seem at war with each other. Totally agree. In order yeah. to be empathetic, you know, we paint this picture of a, a nice guy or gal um, that's always taking great care of people and, you know, patting people on the back, like that's empathy, right? But then to be honest, you know, that's constructive criticism. It's open lines of communication. It's yeah. firing quick, hiring slow, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, to weave those properly is an art. And I would say that every great leader, uh, does find a way to do both of those things. Yeah, I would, I would agree. What about business success? Again, in your experience working with these businesses, if you had to choose one thing and I'll kind of fire off a couple, uh, you know, market timing, the company's leadership, teamwork, the market conditions, their business model product. What do you think is the most key to business success? Only one. You got it. Only one. If I have two, all right. One, it would just do. Let's do two. One would just be people. Okay. Right. Because you talk about companies, but there's no such thing as a company. You can't say like Microsoft said. It's not Microsoft said. You know, it's 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 some product line manager got legal involved and you know uh, finance and, 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 you know, product development, and they brought something to market. I mean, it's always people. So, so you get the right people working together. You can do things that are just boundless. You get the wrong people, one wrong person, and they can make an organization toxic and, and struggle, um, for an inordinate amount of time, sort of an, an asymmetric impact. So if you get the right people, wow, asymmetric positive, you get the wrong people, asymmetric negative and, and maybe death. Um, I think the, the other thing is, is timing, you know, um, there's a lot, there, there, there are many companies that exist that have had great ideas that are too early or too late in a market. And then there are others that, but they've been brilliant products. And then there've been others that had like a mediocre product, but they just happen to stumble into the right location at the right time. And, you know, they just, they took off, um, so I, so I think I think being sensitive to the timing of a market and knowing when it's too early or too late is is the number one. Being self-aware of where you are in that market and what you can sustain and what you can't and what you need to get out of it. Um, honestly, 
is is probably the number one uh, determinant of whether you'll succeed or not in um, you know in in chasing something. I think that's where that pragmatism or instinct yeah. kind of comes into play. Yep. Um, Cliff, I got a, two more questions for you. These are <laughs> sort of, uh, actually three. These are sort right. of rapid fire and some of my favorite questions. Okay. If you're going to recommend three books uh, aside from yours to the audience, what would they be? Um, got to go with the managing the professional services firm by David Maester. So if you're interested in consulting, that is the Bible and it's a brilliantly written book. Um, uh, there's a really cool old book that I love called endurance. And it's about this guy named Ernest Shackleton. And, uh, he was this explorer back in the, in the, uh, early 1900s. And, and he kept 28 people alive on ice float for two years. Uh, when his ship sank and got uh, got trapped, and I, I just I, it was written in the fifties. It's as good today as it, as I'm sure it was uh, back then. It's one of my favorite. And then because I always dig hearing about people who created a market and created a, a, a you know a, a world. There's a there's a there's a fun book called The Widow Clicquot um, that is about you, you know you know Champagne Verve Clicquot you know that orange label stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's good, right? Uh, a, a, a woman started that business at a time when um, Dom Perignon uh, was her competitor and, and they were trying to engineer bubbles out of champagne because they thought it was a flaw. Uh, she created an, an empire and a, and a domain after her husband died. And um, it's just a really brilliant tale that, uh, that, I, that I enjoy. Anyway, so those are the three fun books. I love it. These last two, uh, I got to give them credit. These are from Tim Ferriss's podcast. Yes, a lot of people these, but I love them. What was the best purchase in under a hundred dollars that you've made recently? Uh, 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 Cardia Mobile uh, EKG portable EKG device for my father-in-law. It does. Uh, you put your fingers on it, and it's a clinical grade EKG. It's it's the the first dip of the toe in this care at home thing that's going to be the future of healthcare for us. So, and then last but not least, if you could put anything on a big blank billboard, you know, imagine this billboard being over the busiest road or intersection that you know. Yeah. What would it say? Call your dad. Call your dad. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Got it. Cliff, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I've learned a ton. I'm sure the audience has as well. I'm excited for your book coming out here in June, I believe. Uh, again, it's yes. called Growing the Top Line, Four Key Questions and the Proven Process to Scaling Your Business. Cliff, aside from finding your book on Amazon and anywhere books are sold, how can people find out more about you? Uh, you can go to uh, our firm's website, which is uh, www.beacongroupconsulting.com, B-E-A-C-O-N-G-R-O-U-P, consulting.com. Or you can check out uh, clifffarrow.com and, and learn a little bit more about the book um, uh, in detail. Yeah. Thanks again for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jared. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was a fun conversation.